And uh, even though my degrees are in systematic theology, I've, I've grown more in the study of biblical theology than any other area. And so we've been looking at the theme of priest. And the reason we did out of our study of Genesis is because we met Melchizedek. What a mystery he is. So actually, I want to try, if we can, finish that study this evening. Um, but there, there is a, a lot to look at. So if you want to, turn to Matthew 8. We'll get there. Um, we're we're going to be all over the place. So what, what we've done is um, we started uh, with Melchizedek. And then we went back to the creation account. Uh, you remember what we've looked for is there are two priests here in the Bible. There's the Aaronic priests uh, whose, whose calling and, and responsibility is very limited. Right? Uh, so this is the Levitical Aaronic priesthood. But then there is this other priesthood. It is a royal priesthood. And the name that we attach it to because of New Testament theology is Melchizedek. What we've seen is Melchizedek is one of many who embodied this royal priesthood. And we go all the way back to Adam. And from Adam, we see it with Noah. Remember, Noah's building the altar, and you get the royal language with him. Uh, a law is given to, to, to Noah because he's another Adam. We saw it with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We saw it with Moses, right, which is striking because Moses and Aaron are both Levites. Aaron, it, he's, he's, he's the high priest, so it's his family of high priests, but Moses is still a Levite. Uh, but he's also the, the, the chief of, of Israel, right? Jethro is another one that, that fits this. He's the chief of, of his clan, and yet he's, he's called a, a priest of God. Um, and then the number one figure to look at, and there's others I'm sure we could have looked at, that's David. You remember that David is known as king, but he functions as a priest. And we looked at many examples. We're in the uh, linen ephod. Um, and dancing, and, and he, he moves the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, which is where Melchizedek is king of Salem, right? So we saw all of that. And we also remember that the prophecy was made to Eli, who was a priest, uh, but he was more like Aaron in that he and his sons just completely failed. Uh, the prophecy was that God would build a house for a royal priest. And it's David and Solomon who come talking about a house. But we see it's ultimately in someone else. And that, of course, is Jesus. So, so I want us to see how Jesus is a true and better Melchizedek. Now, here's my goal. My goal is not to reference Hebrews very much. In fact, for the sake of time, because Danny has done such an excellent job in, in study of Hebrews, we're not going to go look at Hebrews. If we wanted to add another week or two, we could do that. So what I'm going to try to do is show how this is consistent with the New Testament. The writer of Hebrews didn't just find a verse in Psalm 108 about Melchizedek and then attach it to Jesus, right? Rather, this was being developed uh, within the New Testament times. So there's a few ways Jesus demonstrates this, uh, that he is the royal priest. And this, this is, there's a lot of application here. So, so don't think we're just talking about Jesus. We're also talking about our daily lives, as we'll see. The first is uh, through the means of the new kingdom and the new covenants. Now, for the sake of time... Um, we can't go into detail I would like, but um, remember that we, we've talked a lot about a priest, but it's a royal priest. So what we're looking for is one who just doesn't function as a priest, but is someone who is, who is royalty, someone who is a king. And the New Testament is very clear on this point, right? I don't think I, we need to defend the fact that Jesus is presented as king, right? Um, now, if you want to... Uh, develop the theology of the kingship of Jesus, the book of Matthew is where you need to be. I've, I've shown you this probably a half dozen times. I've done entire sermons on this. Um, in fact, I'm working on a series of posts on my website going through Matthew to do this in, in a fuller sense. I think I'm on the sixth part or something. It'll be like a 10-part series. Um, but Matthew does this. For, for example, just look at a few. Genesis 1, in, or Matthew 1 rather, the genealogy of Jesus What's the first verse say? This is the genealogy of Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. And then it proceeds to give you 14 generations, I think it's 14, of generations of Jesus. And guess who else is mentioned again? Abraham and David. I wonder why that is. Because you need to see Jesus is Jew, right? He's, he's the son of Abraham. He's also royal, he's son of David. Now, in Luke's nativity scene, there are shepherds. In Matthew's, there's the Magi. Now, who are the Magi? They crown kings. They come bearing royal presents, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But where do the wise men go first? They don't go to Jesus. They go to the king of the Jews, the man who has given himself the title. He's a governor. He's the same thing as Pilate. 
Um, but he, he's sort of given himself the title of king. Uh, I don't blame him. If I could get away with it, I, I would too. And, uh, but what do the Magi discover? You're not the king. So they go to the true king and give the gifts. Right? And, and we get all that juxtaposition with, with Pharaoh. Herod's new Pharaoh. They go back to Egypt. They have to come out of Egypt. All of that is going back to the story of Israel. What's the message of John the Baptist? Repent for the kingdom of God is, is at hand. What's the message of Jesus? Matthew 4. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. What's the temptations of Jesus? It's about kingship. I will give you all the kingdoms of the world if you will bow down and worship me. Right? And, and then what's the next one? He's, he's at the top of the temple. He's a royal priest. Right? What is the Sermon on the Mount? How does that conclude? People are amazed because he speaks as one with authority. In each chapter, I believe this is true. Don't quote me. But at least in chapter 7 and I think in chapter 5, there's a reference to a king or a kingdom. For example, not everyone who will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? So here we have Jesus upon a throne on the Sermon on the Mount by which he speaks with authority. He talks about kingship. Right? We can keep doing this throughout the whole thing. Matthew 13 is the kingdom parables. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like a sower goes out to sow. And so what you have then is the king describing his kingdom to those who will be citizens of his kingdom. Right? What is, what is the, the sign above Jesus' cross in Matthew? This is Jesus, king of the Jews. Why does Matthew emphasize the, the robe they throw on him and the scepter in his hand and a crown upon his head? Well, why is that? It's because in Matthew's theology, he wants you to see Jesus is king. But of course, it isn't just Matthew. Now, I skipped two-thirds of the book, right? Um, Luke 1, you go back to Luke in, in the nativity. Uh, he will be great, will be called the son of the most high, uh, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Right, notice, very specific. There's the angel to Mary. Look, what he's inheriting is a throne. And that is because he is a king. The epistles do this. Again, we do a lot of skipping. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. Right? Uh, chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. He was blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords. That where have we heard king of kings and lord of lords? Revelation, right? They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just true your ways, O king of the nations. That's the whole point of Revelation is who's king? Right? Is it the beast or is it the lamb? Right? Uh, chapter 17, they will make war on the lamb. Right? Remember, he's the lion lamb. We've talked about that a hundred times. The lamb will conquer him. He's lord of lord, king of kings. Same thing, chapter 19, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. The robe is, is what a king would wear, right? He has an army. He, he rules and he reigns. This is the whole point. Uh, Caesar isn't king. Jesus is king. Right? This is clear theology of, of the New Testament. And then we can talk about the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Well, in an essence, the kingdom of God is where God's rule and reign is manifested. It is a new reality manifested and transforms this fallen present world. Now, there's two ways by which we witness the kingdom of God. One is by faith. Right? We get that, right? If, if you're a believer in Christ, you're a citizen of the kingdom because he's your king. Right? That makes sense. The other is the eschaton. Jesus is going to show up, and by force, he's going to set up his kingdom. Isn't that what we're all hoping for? I mean, I hope you ain't hoping that the next election will fix it. That's what we thought last time, and the time before that, and the time before that. No, Jesus is going to show up with a sword and a fancy horse and a big army. What comes out of that is a kingdom and no more gates because there's no more enemies, right? So the eschaton will, will realize it. Now, what you need to know about the kingdom of God is that in the Gospels, Jesus presents it as both present and future. This is what theologians call the already and the not yet, or if you want a fancy term, here you go, Lane. Here's your fancy term. Inaugurated eschatology. It's inaugurated in that it's here. It's eschatological in that we're still waiting for it. Right? That's, that's your fancy term. Send it to Keith since he skipped out on this. So here is some evidence that the kingdom of God is here. From that time, Jesus began to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of God will eventually get here. Right? No, 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 no. Kingdom of God is right here. You know, because I'm the king. Right? Um, or uh, Luke 17, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be served, nor would they say, lo, here it is, there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's here, right here. I mean, think about that. 
When the church gathers for worship, where's the kingdom? It's right there. Right there. When a family sits down at the dinner table and, and, and blesses the food, where, where's the kingdom of God? It's right there. When a Christian goes to work in a secular environment and living faithfully to the calling of the gospel, where's the kingdom? Kingdom is right there. And you think there's implications to this? Yeah. Yeah, huge implications to this. Uh, Matthew 12, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered, the kingdom of God is not coming. Oh, that, that's the parallel, my bad. Um, now, it's also future. Uh, Luke 19, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Now, Jesus just said, it's not coming immediately. It's already here, right? But at the same time, he'll say, uh, a nobleman went into a far country to receive a kingdom, then return. So, so what he's saying here is, is it's, it's still coming. And you remember what, what Jesus will, will say is that, that, that he, he'll, he'll describe it in the future sense. The kingdom of God is like, right? It, it, you can't see it now. It's a mustard seed. But you wait for it. It's coming, right? And, and, and we get talk of, of the, the eschaton, Jesus as king, ruling the nations, Right, and judging the nations. So we get both the kingdom of God is here and the kingdom of God is future. Now, there's application there, isn't there? You and I right now believe the kingdom of God is here. Where the gospel goes, there, the kingdom comes with it. At the same time, this ain't the kingdom. And that's a good thing. This is not as good as, as the kingdom's going to get. It's going to get better than our monthly business meetings. Isn't that amazing? That's good news, isn't it? Well, it used to be monthly business meetings and then COVID happened. Now, Jesus also says the kingdom only comes by the means of the gospel. In fact, if, if you were to do a study of Matthew, Matthew's gospel, the first 16 chapters, it's kingdom, 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 kingdom. At chapter 16, when Peter does his confession, that's the turning point of Matthew and Mark. Everything changes at that point. And then all of a sudden, it's cross, 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 cross. In fact, read Matthew 16. Peter confesses that. And then remember what Jesus does. He says... We must go to Jerusalem and suffer all things. And I must be raised again. And what's Peter do? Um, Jesus, not on my watch. You can't separate the kingdom and the, and the cross. So we get Luke 22. Likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, The cup that is being poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Notice here, Jesus is establishing not just a better way to live, but, but a new covenant with humanity. This is what God did with Adam and Noah and Abraham and David and Moses, all of them. And this new covenant is a new kingdom. And at its center is the cross, right? This cup, his, bro his, his blood shed. This bread, his, his broken body. At the core is what Jesus does at, at, at the cross. So why is this important? We need to establish Jesus as king. He is royalty. But we also need to establish that he is priest. And there's three areas to, to see this in the New Testament. The first is the role of cleansing. Now, notice Matthew 8. Matthew 8 is one of my favorite chapters in the Gospel of Matthew. And we've looked at it in some detail before, and boy, do I wish we had time to do it again. I love it, right? If I ever have to preach a sermon and I'm not prepared, we're going right here, okay? I mean, it's it just, it's so good. The first story there, uh, when he came down from the mountain, this is the Sermon on the Mount. By the way, this, this parallels with the story of Sinai. Moses goes to the top of the mountain. What's happening at the bottom of the mountain? It's chaos. Jesus ascends to the top of a mountain, first sermon on the mount, right? He, he gives a new law for this new covenant. What's at the foot, foot of the mountain? It's chaos, right? He'll do this again at Mount Transfiguration, same story. So he comes down from the mountain, great crowds followed him, and behold, a leper came to him. Now, a leper, if we were to change this leper to someone who has been diagnosed with COVID-19. Do you see a problem here? Large crowd, COVID patient. That's a problem, isn't it? And that's what we've been trying to avoid for the last 13 months. Right? And this, this today, uh, the, the kids are, are going to go, and they're getting tested and all this, and they go, have you been in crowds of 10 or more? Like, not since I had COVID. No. It's, it's illegal, essentially, right? Before COVID, you bitch a sweet bippy. I've gone to Kroger, right? I mean, but, but why do we do that? We understand that, that the spreads, that's leprosy. Belief was that, that if you touch a leper, you will now get leprosy. We get this, right? I've, I've joked with the kids. It's a joke. It's a joke. Um, 
you know, first I got COVID, seven days later, Manning gets COVID, seven days later, now the kids get it, right? And I said, you know what? I wish on day one, I had just, we all shared from the same cup, right? And we just, let's just all go ahead and get it out of the way, right? It's a joke, but it's going to take us a whole month of quarantine, basically, right? Um, when, when you go, go through, through everyone. So, so too, here's a leper in the middle of this crowd, and he's having to shout, leper, leper, right? Through his mask, no doubt. But notice what happens. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. That's verse 2. Verse 3, Jesus stretched out his hand, and what did Jesus do? Touched him. Is that an important detail? Yeah, it is. You read down uh, when Jesus heals uh, Peter's mother-in-law. Yeah, you can't be doing that. Um, Jesus touches Peter's mother-in-law who is sick. Now, men didn't touch women like that. But he's touching someone who is sick, potentially contagious. Now, what do we expect? We expect Jesus to be defiled. But what happens? It's the opposite. Those who are touched by Jesus are cleansed. Same thing will happen, uh, it may be in the next chapter. Uh, I'm not sure. It's the woman, the issue of blood. Remember, Jesus is going to go heal this little girl. What happens? She touches Jesus. We expect now he is, becomes unclean. But what happens? Jesus cleanses. This is the job of the priest, isn't it? Remember, the whole the priest, their number one function is to guard the sanctuary, the guard of the holy place. And the way you do this is you cleanse people. Jesus will tell the leper after he cleanses him, go to the temple, present yourself before the priest. Why? Because they determine who's clean and who's unclean. Right? This is likely why in the Good Samaritan, why the Levite and the priest step over the, the dude because they don't want to be ceremonially unclean. Remember, we talked about this with Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones. He's a priest. He can't be touching people like that. Don't want to be ceremonially unclean. What does Jesus do? He openly touches and is embraced by people because he won't be made unclean. He will make others clean. This, this, this is the work of, of Jesus. Also, we need to note, Jesus is always clarifying, clarifying what true cleansing is. So turn to chapter 15. We have to do a lot of skipping just for the sake of time. We, we're already behind schedule, um, and that's okay. Matthew 15, we'll do verse 1 to 2, and then we'll skip down to verse 10. Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash with their hands when they eat. Now, this is one of those verses that uh, modern readers, we get, right? We get it. You should wash your hands before you eat. Yeah, I'm, I'm pro that, okay? Um, but the reason they're asking this question isn't for hygiene, for cleansing reasons. You're not clean unless you wash your hands first. So the physical determines the spiritual, basically. Skip down to, to verse 10. He called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Skip down to verse 19. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Notice what he just said there. He's, he's, he's articulating what true cleanliness is. It's a spiritual cleanliness. This is the job of the priest. Now, the priests think they're doing it by the ritual. But Jesus says true cleansing, true cleanliness is righteousness. So it's out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. And if what comes out is evil, then you are evil, right? If it's unclean, then you're unclean. So, so Jesus is constantly clarifying what all this stuff means. Also, notice in, in the Gospels, and then later on in Acts and whatnot, we get this strange thing to us Americans, because we're all Gentiles. And that is that Jesus makes all foods clean. In fact, this is made very explicit in, in Mark chapter 7. Since it enters not his heart, but in his stomach, and expelled, that's the same story we just read in Matthew. Thus, here's, here's the parenthetical note, a little theology given to us by Mark. Thus he declared all foods clean. Now, is this a big issue in the New Testament? Yeah, there's a little story about Peter having a strange vision. There's a sheet with, with good-tasting food on it, like bacon. And no matter what else is on there, there's bacon. And what, is, what does Jesus say? Eat, it's clean. Well, who determines what is and isn't clean? Well, God, yes, but it's the priest. So it isn't just that Jesus is declaring things to be clean. He makes things clean. He transforms things into being clean. 
Now, what's the application there? I, I think it's very obvious. As priest, Jesus declares not just food clean, but people, sinners who are clean. In fact, the story we'll look at Sunday night, Lord willing, um, I should be good for three months, so I shouldn't have COVID Sunday night. Um, yeah, 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 it's a good feeling. Um, it's the story of uh, uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector praying in the temple. Jesus declares the tax collector, who is dirty and filthy and unclean, declares him justified at the end of the story. Right? Isn't that essentially what the gospel is? We, we are full of shame and guilt and dirtiness and filthiness and all this. This, this is common language in the New Testament. But what does Jesus do at the resurrection upon repentance and faith? Declares us clean, and he makes us clean. Much of the New Testament is what does it mean to live righteous lives? You know, it looks like this, it doesn't look like that. Well, that's what a priest does. He declares and makes us righteous, makes us clean. So it's not our ritual or our, our works or our attendance. Rather, it's Christ, our royal priest, who makes us clean. That's, that's good news there. Third thing we see that Jesus does as priest is intercession. Here you're going to want to turn to John chapter 17. <coughs> Believe me, it ain't what it used to be. Cough ain't nothing now. This is the most I've talked for three weeks. I'm feeling it in the throat. John 17, verse, verse 8. Let's go down to verse, verse 19. Here, here's the big idea. Jesus prayed for you, and he prayed for his disciples, interceding on, on their behalf. I don't know if we'll read all of this. Verse 8, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to, to know in truth that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given uh, to me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them. That's the responsibility of Adam and the priest, to guard, to work. Um, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. It's Judas. The scripture might be fulfilled. All right, that, that, that's good enough. Now, what do we call this prayer? Uh, mine mine has, the, has the subheading. It's the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Right, why is it a high priestly prayer? One of the reasons is because Jesus is interceding on our behalf. I mean, you ever really thought about Jesus prayed for you? And that's something. He prayed for you. Um, there's a lot of people I want praying for me. Like Jesus is up there at the top, okay? You know, I want all you guys pray for me, but I want Jesus right there. And he, he prayed. Now, there should be a story that comes to mind of, of one of our royal priests interceding on behalf of, of his people. It's Moses, right? You remember, Moses actually goes and says, take my life. Let, 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 I'm going to intercede. Right? And he, he intercedes on, on, on their behalf. But this is what a priest is supposed to do. Right? Now, the Catholic Church does this through, through the confessional. You have to go through a priest in order to, to be absolved of sin, which is put a lot heretical. Um, but, um, but that's Jesus, right? So um, I think I have it up here. Yeah. Let me give you some Bible verses where Jesus intercedes in addition to, to John. Romans 8, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Right? So, so the one who has the right of condemnation has himself become the one who was condemned. Theologically, that is penal substitution. There's you another term back there, right? Um, that, that, that is penal substitutionary atonement. Right? So, so, so the one who has the right of condemnation offers justification. It's the beauty of the cross. More than that, he was raised. So isn't that just that he suffered condemnation, but that he conquered our condemnation? It's satisfied forever and ever. Right? That, that, that's, again, this is the beauty of it. Who is at the right hand of God. So, so the one who suffered condemnation and is the only one that can give condemnation is at the right hand of the Father. And what is he doing? He's interceding for us. So we come before the throne of grace and we say, as we'll see Sunday night, God be merciful to me, a sinner. What is Jesus? Jesus steps in and says, now, let me represent. Okay? God, I'm on your side. I'm fully divine. 
I'm fully human. So yeah, I'll take the blow for him. I mean, that, that's the gospel in a nutshell. That is it. Christ interceded on our behalf. Hebrews 7, so this is my one Hebrews quote. Consequently, he is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him, right? Has to come through Christ since he always lives. Now, pause there because you're going to overlook this. Does the resurrection matter in this one verse? Jesus lives right now to make intercession. He didn't make intercession in the past. He's making intercession now. Moses can't do that. David can't do that. Jesus can. The resurrection is, is at the center of our faith. One more. I, th I think it's just, just well, two more, actually. This, the last one's the one I wanted to get at earlier. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Well, yeah, that's it. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. Right now, what's the word advocate there? It's the Parakletos, the one who comes alongside. Um, in Jesus uses this word to describe the, the, the Holy Spirit, and we usually translate it helper, advocate, counselor, comforter. That's where we get the idea of the Holy Spirit as a comforter. That word is now applied to Jesus. Jesus is the one who comes alongside, even if we do sin, and makes us righteous. One one last passage here. There is one God. And there is one mediator between God and men. Now, in the Jewish system, there's been thousands of men between God and man. But there is only one eternal mediator between God and man. It's the God-man. Notice, he's, it, he, Paul says, the man, Christ. All right? I mean, th this, is, this is good, sound Christology. Um, by the way, if you're interested in this, so, Lane, if you're interested in this, uh, C.J. Mahaney's book, Christ our mediator, I think it's called. I think I had it once. I, I doubt I have it now. It's, it's super short, like all C.J. Mahaney's books. It's really helpful. walks through the mediator theology. Uh, now think about it. There is a man right now at this very moment who is interceding on your behalf. Now that's worth meditating on, isn't it? There, there's going to be a real peace that is found just in that. Several years ago, when we were living in, in, in Breckenridge County, a um, group of us, I mentioned uh, my good friend, he, he was there, um, and all the others, we, we would eat at Hardee's every Thursday morning for breakfast. And we would just hang out for as long as we wanted, you know, get away from church people. And uh, this one is Pentecostal guy comes in. And one is Pentecostalism is what T.D. Jakes at least used to be, if not still is. A lot of your charismatic TBN guys are one is Pentecostal. It's a heresy. The belief is, is, is that God is one. He, he can't be triune. So what you have is what's called modalism. Old Testament, God is Father. Gospels, uh, God is Son. Now God is Spirit. So you have modes, much in the same way, I'm a father, I'm a son, and I'm a brother. But I can't be all three at the same time, right? I can't be my children's brother and father. And that's, that, that's one is Pentecostal. It's, it's heretical. It's, it's an old heresy. Anyways, this one is Pentecostal guy comes in. He's, he's trying to convert us. And I, one of my good buddies, he says, look, let me ask you a question. Do you believe there is right now a man sitting right at the right hand of the throne of the Father? Now, he's doing that for theological reasons, right? Because if, if God is exclusively one, then you can't have a God sitting next to him, right? I mean, that, that's, that's a problem. Not much of a mathematician and... But I don't think that works. One on one doesn't equal one um, in, in that sense. So, so there was a good question to ask because it's very clear Jesus is at the right hand of the throne of the Father. But also pastorally, there is something rich there, isn't there? There is a man who is like us in every way, another Hebrews quote, yet without sin, interceding on your behalf. When you pray, he intercedes on your behalf. When you cry out for help, he is interceding on your behalf. Why? He's priest. And this is why we Southern Baptists, we don't have priests, do we? I'm not a priest. I was called a priest one time. I someone who just didn't understand. Like, let me be clear. I ain't no priest. My, you've heard me say this. If, if we go do a family function or a function with some friends or church members, and someone needs to pray for the meal... I get asked to do it. Why? Because I'm a pastor. I get it. Yeah, I'll pray. No problem. But I always like to joke, you know, God hears your prayers just as much as he hears mine. 
Now, why is that true? It's because we have a priest who makes intercession for us. This is why we pray, in Jesus' name, so be it. Amen. It's because Jesus is priest. Well, one last thing. Um, New temple. Interestingly, Jesus' life opens up and concludes in association with the temple. Luke 2. So I'm just going to use Luke's gospel to show the symmetry. Uh, Luke 2 is the scene at the temple. It's going to get circumcised. You meet uh, the, uh, the prophet and prophet is Anna and Simeon or Simon. It's the same name, but it's Simeon. Okay. It comes from the same Hebrew word. It's just pronounced differently. Um, one has an extra vowel. So all that happens at the temple, right? We get that. And remember, also in chapter 2 is, is when Jesus is teaching in the temple as a 12-year-old. Um, and then in chapter 23, you get the tearing of, of it. So you have Christ outside Jerusalem, um, but inside things are happening in the temple. Not to mention the cleansing of the temple. All the stuff at the, the last week of Jesus happens in the temple, uh, which, which we'll see here in a minute. Um, uh, do we want to read this? Now, we want to read it. All right, Mark chapter 11, Jesus cleanses the temple. Um, he says in uh, Mark eleven seventeen, 17, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? You've made it a den of robbers. And it's the chief priests who seek to destroy him. Uh, and they'll even ask, particularly in John's account, by what authority do you have of, of this? Right? Here we have Jesus taking on the role of a priest cleansing God's house. This is what the priest did in the story of Haggai, Nehemiah, Ezra. Ezra does this, the rebuilding of the temple. So you have a desecration of the temple. The Babylonians destroy it. Seventy years later, the rededicating of the temple. This is what Ezra is doing. Jesus is now doing it with Herod's temple. Right? This, this, is, this is the work of a priest. Uh, later, in, in, I think I got it up here, Mark 13. So in chapter 11 of Mark, he cleanses the temple. In fact, it's one of the gospels... I think it's Matthew. He cleanses the temple. I'm pretty sure it's Matthew. You, you can find it. Um, and then it says, and the, ta- or, uh, the sinners and the other came in to worship with Jesus. Right? The second he cleanses it, its function is now actually happening. It doesn't function as a monopoly to make money. It functions so that sinners can, can come to come be close with God and be cleansed. Right? It, it, it's very subtle. It's one little verse, but it's there if, if you're looking for it. Matthew 13, right? And they say, look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. Looking at the temple, right? From Mount of Olives, you can, to this day, with, now it's the Dome of the Rock. But it's, it was gold. It was very bright. And he says, uh, ain't one stone going to be left. Well, what is Jesus here? Jesus is cleansing, but he's ultimately going to destroy the temple. Isn't that, isn't that what he said in, in, in John? Um, he, he condemns and cleanses. He destroys, but he doesn't just destroy, right? This is what we do today. We, we destroy things, and then we think, oh, we'll figure it out after the fire stop. But Jesus comes to actually replace the temple. So John 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've mentioned this before. That word dwelt is the Greek word tabernacle. Jesus tabernacled among us. Now, what is the temple? The temple is God dwelling with humanity. But because humanity is dirty and unclean, there must be a wall. Right? There must be something separating God and man. Otherwise, we'd all be dead. This is why at the Sinai story, you don't touch the mountain. Right? It's, it's holy space, and you're unholy. So now what you have is a man in flesh, God walking among us. And if God is walking among us in Christ, why do we need the temple? This is what John is setting up in in the very first chapter. The Word was with God. The Word was God. We beheld His glory. And the Word became flesh and was tabernacled among us. So we get in chapter 2. Now, this is interesting. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the cleansing of the temple happens in the final week of Jesus. happens on Monday. In John's gospel, happens at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So, is John taking things out of order? Probably. All four gospels do this. Luke to less so. Or were there two cleansings? That's the debate. Is there one or two cleansings? I don't know the answer, nor does anyone else. 
Uh, but there are arguments on both sides. And here's the question. What sign do you show us to say you have authority? He says, oh, here it is. Destroy this temple. I'm going to tear it down. In three days, I will raise it up again. They're like, yeah, it took 46 years for us to get rid of COVID. I mean, it took 46 years for us to build this thing, right? And you're going to raise it up three days? And then John adds a little theological narrative note. He says, hey, guys, I'm going to ruin the ending. Christ is going to die. He's going to come back from the dead. And that's when we knew what he was talking about. It's a building at the end of the day. But when Christ is risen from the dead, we have a new temple. And this is why you have to have the ripping of that curtain. Because God doesn't dwell behind a curtain anymore. God has come in the person of Christ. He's replaced the temple. Now think about it. Jesus has been showing the signs of this, right? One of them is the Last Supper is called that, not only because it was their last dinner for his death, but because it's the last Passover. You don't need the temple anymore. There's no need, there's no Passover. Why sacrifice a lamb when he's already, the eternal lamb's already been sacrificed? You don't need the temple. You don't need the rituals. You have Christ. So he doesn't just come to condemn and destroy it. He comes to replace it. He is the temple. So how then does Jesus function as a priest in the temple? We've got to go through these real quick because there's a lot here. First, Jesus, um, Jesus declares um, what is clean in the temple. Um, so John 5, I think all these are from John. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Notice, Jesus is declaring who is clean. This is the man who was trying to get in the pool, right? And Jesus heals him. So Jesus declares in the temple who is clean. Whose job is that? We read it about the leper. It's the priest's job. Jesus is doing their, their, their job. Um, secondly, Jesus teaches in the temple. I could give you a dozen quotes here. Uh, middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple teach. Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple and all the people to him. He sat down and taught them, right? Jesus will later say, uh, where were you when I was teaching openly in the temple? You didn't arrest me, right? This, this, Jesus teaches in the temple all the time. Who teaches in the temple? It's priests. We get that, all right? But Jesus is teaching in the temple. Thirdly, Jesus claims unity with the Father in the temple. Now, remember, what is the temple? It's where God dwells with man, Therefore, to claim that you are one with the Father is blasphemy if it's not true. Jesus confesses this in John chapter 10. Um, we don't have time to look at it, but the Jews gather and they say, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus, I have told you, and you still won't believe. Um, he says, my sheep hear my voice, so the shepherd language, I know them, they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish, all that sort of stuff. And, and I and the Father are one, he says. Then the stone, the, the Jews pick up stones to, to kill him, right? And, and, and he says, uh, why are you doing this? The Jews answered, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And where's Jesus doing this? The man claiming to be God, where God dwells. What is he saying here is, this is my house. This is where I lived, but now I'm in the flesh. So why does this matter, particularly this last point about the temple? Um, if Christ is the true and better temple, then God dwells with his people in Christ. Now, that is crucial to, to New Testament theology. Do a word study of the phrase in Christ. In fact, just do it in Ephesians 1. In Christ, with Christ, through Christ. Thus, Jesus, as the God-man, is the temple of God. In him, God and man dwell together. Thus, that's the idea of the Garden of Eden. Um, and this now means that the temple is no longer necessary. We don't make sacrifices here. You imagine getting blood on the carpet. And, and we, I grew up thinking God actually slept in my home church, right? But, but we, we call this God's house, but we, we, don't, we don't have that in mind. But that is what, what they would have thought about the temple to a certain extent. So where does God dwell now? Right? If Christ is ascended on high, where is the temple of God? The answer is you and me. So in John chapter 10, Jesus breathes on his disciples. Now, is that word important? 
And Johannine theology is very important because the word wind, spirit, and breath are the same Greek word found throughout the Gospel of John. Remember what Jesus told Nicodemus? You don't know which way the wind blows, which way the spirit moves. Same word, wind and spirit. Uh, and, and he does this throughout. The, it's the wind on, on the waves. Jesus calms. He's Lord over the wind. You know, um, So it's all over John. He breathes on them. That's an act of creation. What does he say? Receive the Holy Spirit. So just as God breathed on Adam and became a living being, so Christ breathes on the disciples and they become uh, spirit-indwelt temples. The temples where God the Spirit lives. Now it's the disciples. This happens in uh, uh, Acts 2. The Jesus ascends. The Spirit descends. That's the Pentecost experience. 1 Corinthians 3 is made very clear. You, dear reader, are God's temple. Now, why is that so important? Well, being God's temple means, first of all, holiness. We are called the holiness. So 1 Corinthians 3, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy. You are that temple. This is why holiness matters. It isn't because we're a stick in the mud or because we don't believe in, in not having fun. It is because you as a believer are God's temple. Do not desecrate it. Holiness matters. Not just holiness, but uh, possession. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, uh, I'll just have to read it. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know your bodies are members of the Christ? Notice that this idea isn't just a spiritual idea, be a good person. It's a physical idea. What you do with your body matters to Jesus. All right? Now, don't take that to the extreme, but don't dismiss it either. Um, shall I then take the members of Christ... By the way, notice the, the corporate nature of that phrase. And make them members of a prostitute. Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Or do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Notice, you are not your own. You were bought with a price... So glorify God with your body. So it isn't just we're called to be holy, but we're not even our own anymore. You were bought at a price, and that was the shed blood of the God-man, the royal priest. The one who offers the lamb is the lamb. So we are the possession of God. Thirdly, that of worship. So 2 Corinthians 6, the wrong button. Um, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That has nothing to do with race. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, the devil? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Right? This is the act of worship. If the temple is a place of worship, guess what is the primary duty of the believer? It's to worship. And you can't separate worship from holiness. You can't separate worship from, from possession. You worship the one that possesses you, who, who bought you. You're now his slave. Fourthly, unity. We can skip this because we're Americans. We don't believe in unity. For through him, notice the link, through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now notice he's saying all y'all through him have this. It's written to a church, not written to you. Remember that. It's a corporate idea. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, church people. You ain't strangers no more. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Notice citizenship is kingdom language. Household is temple language. He's mixing his metaphors. Paul does this all the time. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the, the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows in the holy temple. So, so now he's talking about a house, and he talks about a body, right? And he goes back to the temple motif. In him, right? We, we've talked about that. You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So, so the church is being built together. So when Christians see their unity is in Christ and not who they voted for, we'll be okay. When, when politics has become an idol creeping into the church, guess what the church starts doing? Sniping over things that don't matter anymore. Anymore, orthodoxy is determined by your politics more than the actual faith. You've told me, this, my theory is this is why I think many of us don't realize we have a completely unreached people group in the United States. It's called the state of Utah. And the reason we don't think about it is because they vote Republican. 
more than we do in Kentucky. All right? But that, that's not what brings unity. It's Christ. Christ and him alone. Finally, here's, here's the, this is a big one, and I have one minute to do it. It's, we, ain't been, we ain't seen each other for weeks, so we're going over. You can leave, okay, if, if it's that big of a problem, right? I've missed y'all. Never thought I'd say that, especially with Danny here. But I really did, didn't miss you. Here's the thing. If Christ is the high priest, we are priests under him. This is a big doctrine. I, I wish we had time. I want to recommend a Martin Luther book. It's called The Freedom of the Christian. It's, it's a short little book. I've got it back here. Uh, it's a really helpful little book. And it, 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 he develops this, this doctrine. And this is the doctrine called the priesthood of all believers. So if you were to ask me, what are some Baptist distinctives? And loosely defining that term, I would say things like religious liberty, um, credo baptism. We, we, we don't baptize babies, we baptize believers. Regenerate church membership, stuff like that. Another one we would add, and there's others. Another one we would add would be priesthood of all believers. Now, it's not a Baptist idea. It's, it's for the sake of argument, a Lutheran idea. Martin Luther really developed this in the 16th century. Um, in freedom of the Christian and, and others. Freedom of the Christian is all about how I am free, yet at the same time, I, he has a great line. I'm, I'm not going to be a quote it right. Uh, the Christian is the free Lord of all. The Christian is the do, dutiful servant of all. I think is, is the, it's two sentences. It's something like that. It's in the first page, it's like third paragraph. Uh, you can Google it and find it. Um, but the New Testament is clear. You and I are priests. Now, now this is not just a New Testament idea. If we had time, and I actually want to spend a whole week on this, but, but, but we won't. If you were to go back to Exodus 19, the people of Israel are at Mount Sinai, and God says, I am going to make of y'all, this nation, a kingdom of priests. Now, that is God the Father speaking from Mount Sinai, the generation of Moses. And we've talked about how Moses is a royal priest. But Moses shows us there at Sinai, no, 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 you're supposed to be a royal priest. Now, this makes sense in light of the New Testament now, doesn't it? If Christ is our high priest, we are priests under him. See if I can prove it to you biblically. And, and I think we're only going to look at one, one passage, but I can give you several. Um, by the way, you, you guys in the back like Christian hip-hop, Tripoli in particular? You know, Tripoli... Okay. He has a great line in one of his songs. He said, uh, I ain't got no white collar, but he made me a priest, though. Right? And it's in reference to that's one of my favorite lines. 1 Peter 2 says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen in pressure. That's a beautiful line. You yourselves, the living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. There's that imagery of a temple. To be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now notice there, you and I offer sacrifices. We make offerings before Jesus. This is the work of a priest. This is Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Um, do not be conformed. Um, oh gosh, I can't believe I can't think of that verse. Um, be, renewed, be transformed by renewing of your mind. And he, but it mentions sacrifices. This is the will of, anyways, this, this will work just fine. Um, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. He is quoting Exodus 19. But he's saying this isn't about the Jews. This is about you as a believer in Christ, sons of Abraham, spiritually speaking. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There is a lot there, isn't there? It's a whole lot there. You and I are priests. We're priests. Now, don't go crazy with this. But see why it is good. Um, two things, two areas of application to look at when it comes to the priesthood of all believers. Just for the sake of simplicity, so that we can all leave. Number one, identity. I don't think I put these up here. Yeah, I did. Identity. With Christ as our great high priest, we are priests. So the story goes that we go from filthy, dirty, orphans abandoned on the side of the street to priests. 
uh, my daughter and I, my daughter loves the Hamilton musical. I'm not a musical guy, but Hamilton is quite good, uh, even historically. Uh, not, not everything about it is accurate. Um, Hamilton's wife in the, uh, in the musical has, has two sisters. In real life, she had like 14 siblings. So it, it's off a little bit, you know, on other things too. But um, she, she loves it. And uh, so we, we, we finished it. And they make a big deal that Hamilton was an immigrant who was, who, who was, a, um, he was born out of wedlock. It's, it's the cleanest way I can put it. Very scandalous at the time. So he comes in to the United States, I think he's born in Caribbeans or something, um, comes to the United States as a nobody, an immigrant who didn't have a lineage, you know, uneducated, and he works his way up to be one of the most influential founding fathers, right? It's, it's fascinating. Now, we love those stories, don't we? That's your story. You're, you're, you're a nobody here as a wicked sinner. But now your identity is that of a priest cleansed by God chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation. So our lineage isn't ironic. It's not Levitical, but it comes from a true and better priesthood, a true and better kingdom, a true and better temple, a true and better priest. Last thing, identity. So this matters. This is who you are. Secondly, responsibility. This is the part we have a tendency to leave behind. Um, there was a, a lady I used to pastor in another church, and she... Um, she loved this doctrine, but, but she only saw responsibility as half. She saw that she was a priest unto herself, and that is why she would pray to, to God. And that's good. We, we talked about that. But it's more than that. Priests are God's representative on earth. Is that too simple of a definition of priests? You are a priest. With that comes responsibility. We are called to intercede for others. This is why we gather to pray. So prayer requests isn't a time for gossip. It's a time of intercession. We pray for others. We are to hold fast to holiness as a holy people, a peculiar people for you, King Jamers. I've been reading a lot about the King James Bible and King James himself. You want to go for another hour? Um, uh, but peculiar people is a King James. I love that in, in 1 Peter. So we're to hold fast to holiness. We are to promote unity. You and I have a responsibility to each other. Peter is writing to a congregation that is dispersed. He says, you all have responsibility for each other, the church, because you're all priests. You're God's representative on earth. Act like it. All right, that's enough. I'm exhausted. I'm gonna take a three-hour nap. Anything I've missed you guys want to add? All right. Um, let's go ahead and, and be dismissed. And Lord willing, we'll gather again Sunday morning. Well.